Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks, the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports. Download the Prize Picks app or go to prizepicks.com to sign up and play today. First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code GOODSEATS. So if you deposit $100, Prize Picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, Prize Picks will give you $50. Again, don't forget the promo code GOODSEATS at prizepicks.com or download the Prize Picks app today. And now, here's our show. A whole lot of injury time gone and still the game going on. Still a chance for Manchester United. And it's scraped away again. Referee Zetchevic now in the centre of the field. Again looking at his watch. Pat Crerand and United throwing everybody forward. Here's Sadler. Charlin going in. Malbanat banging it away up the field. Studiant is bringing everybody back. Crerand again sending them forward, sending United forward. Willie Morgan, and it's all over, it's all over, the whistle's gone, the whistle's gone, the whistle has gone. United, Manchester United have lost it, one nothing. incredible scenes on the pitch now as supporters of Estudiantes come onto the field, the reserve players, the manager, the te technical staff all on there, delightedly cheering the crowd, there's Bobby Charlton. A great sportsman, even in defeat. So, Estudiantes draw here tonight 1-1, but with that one goal scored in Buenos Aires. In the first leg, they win official World Club Championship. An untidy, unpleasant ending to the game. But there it is. There's the final result, 1-1 here tonight, but Estudiantes win it 2-1 on aggregate. Well, that was quite a game, and this is Hugh Johns now signing off from Old Trafford, Manchester. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us, however you've done so. We appreciate it. And we're going back into soccer. We're getting ready. We're going to try to get ready. It's very hard this season, this year, this competition, to get uh, excited for the upcoming World Cup. My goodness, in November and December, in the deserts of Qatar, I, I just, I, you know, this this is going to be such a bizarre uh, World Cup, uh, I think, ever, as uh, it's ever been contested. Uh, we're going to try to get into it for sure. Uh, yours truly, uh, a, a pretty uh, large soccer fan, uh, but uh, having a tough time getting into the groove, shall we say. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll get more into it. Maybe uh, it'll start to kick in as the, uh, I don't know, as the, uh, the, the turkey gets served. <laughs> <laughs> for during Thanksgiving here in the United States. We shall see. But we're going to get ready for it uh, in an interesting way as we 
uh, kind of talk about, uh, I w- would argue, is the uh, the club version of a world championship. Uh, and uh, you may know it now uh, as FIFA has uh, tried to sort of bring it to life over the last, I don't know, two decades or so. Uh, it's known as the FIFA Club World Cup. And what has that been? It's been the attempt to crown a, a true world champion club, not a national team, but a club team uh, surfaced from all the various confederations, continental championships of said teams. We we probably know the most uh, popular of those is the UEFA Champions League, uh, ongoing now as we uh, record this episode. But uh, you may know that in Asia and Africa and Oceania and South America and, and North America as well, there are champions, it's mostly called, I think they, they call themselves mostly champions leagues as well there too. Um, in South America, it's called something different. But th- there are competitions on those continents for uh, champions of those regions uh, in the realm of club soccer. Uh, and it's been FIFA's uh, goal over the last number of years uh, to have a true world uh, championship amongst uh, those winners and uh, second uh, place finishers into a a true table uh, and competition to crown what FIFA wants to call the club world champion. And uh, it's a fascinating idea. It's sort of a it's it's been sort of sidelined by uh, COVID and whatnot, and I'm sure it's going to come back in some former fashion. I know Real Madrid has been the most successful uh, of this uh, new competition with four titles since 2000 when uh, it was first uh, contested. But the fascinating story of where the idea came from is the topic of our conversation this week with our guest, Dan Williamson. We're going to be talking about the predecessor to this Club World Cup championship from FIFA, and it's called the Intercontinental Cup also known as the Toyota Cup from, I think it was 1980 onward uh, when Toyota stepped in uh, to um, uh, salvage what was becoming a very rough and tumble and uh, frankly, very dangerous, uh, passionate competition. And what was it? What is it? Well, we're going to get into that uh, that uh, set of circumstances in that conversation with Dan coming up in just a few moments. But in essence... I think most people sort of uh, don't realize this from 1960 when it was uh, first contested and and, uh, ideated uh, through its um, uh, last competition in 2004. That means, yes, it did overlap for a few years with FIFA's competition. It was an actual exhibition series or in its later years, one game. Uh, It was never officially sanctioned by anybody. It wasn't sanctioned by FIFA. It wasn't officially sanctioned by the two continents, that of Europe and that of South America, deemed really in, around that age in the 60s as being really the two major, if not really, you know, kind of only, it wasn't the only, the only two continents where the game was being played. No, no by, by, by no means that. But in terms of of of, of uh, offering the best year in, year out teams around the world, I don't think there's any question that those two continents were deemed as being kind of the best. And uh, the idea was let's create a, uh, a little mini series or a one game playoff between those two champions and we'll deem them the world's best club uh, accordingly. And 
for many years, from 1960 all the way through the uh, early parts of the aughts. Uh, that's exactly what happened. And was it a true world champion? Well, probably not. But, you know, in the absence of any official competition like we've got now, um, the argument is absolutely it was. And interestingly, as we get into our conversation with Dan Williamson, uh, it's uh, it actually gets us into retroactive continuity territory, our retcon sort of little mini uh, obsession, because what has FIFA done in all its infinite wisdom as it's officialized this competition and broadened it to across the globe, they've actually incorporated all of the champions of this internet intercontinental, they almost did it there, intercontinental cup, also known as the Toyota Cup from 1980 onwards. You may remember as that. Uh, they have incorporated the winners of this cup prior to the, the forming of the FIFA uh, version as the official world champions. So, I mean, let the uh, the hemming and hawing, uh, uh, you know, uh, begin, right? Uh, did, uh, you know, did the winners of these uh, really only two continents, this cup, uh, are they the true world champions? I mean, was Santos in 1963 with Pelé uh, beating uh, Milan? Uh, uh, at the, uh, you know, in a two game, actually it was, that was a three game one. It was two games. It was, uh, uh, tied on aggregate and they had a playoff game. Were they the best team in the world? Um, by most accounts, probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Santos and Pele were absolutely world phenomenon at that time. Right. Uh, and Milan, arguably, you know, the champions of Europe, you know, they probably were the two best teams, but you know, as the years went on and as the world got better at the game. Um, you know, the real curiosity and the real question sort of comes about is how do you do a contesting of, of truly the world's best teams? And that's where we are today with the FIFA World Club World Cup competition when it comes back. But we're going to get into the predecessor of all of that, the Intercontinental or later years Toyota Cup with Dan Williamson coming right up. And uh, he should know because he is the author of the relatively new book, When Two Worlds Collide, the Intercontinental Cup Years. Uh, fantastic read. It is published by Pitch Publishing. And uh, it's a fascinating story. If you're not a soccer fan or maybe you're just a domestic uh, fan of the game here in the States, but not the, the on the World Cup. I mean, we're talking about some major competitions, some memorable matches. Uh, and uh, you heard in that clip there, uh, one of the most memorable um, uh, versions of that cup was in 1968. That was Hugh Johns for the uh, uh, UK's ITV network. Uh, wrapping up the second game uh, contested between Estudiantes of Argentina and Manchester United uh, on October 16th, 1968. And uh, it was a big, gigantic buildup for this game. Uh, uh, the first match had, had occurred uh, two months or actually a month earlier, September 25th, 1968 at um, in Buenos Aires in uh, La Bomba, uh, Bon Bonera. That's the uh, very famous uh, uh, venue down there. Uh, and uh, Estudiantes had beaten uh, Manchester United one zip in the uh, in the first leg. And the second leg, as you just heard, ended in a tie, which essentially meant that Estudiantes had won in aggregate. But it was a messy affair. Uh, there were people thrown out of the game. George Best famously uh, uh, sent off. Uh, there was a big scuffle at the end of the match. Uh, Bobby Charlton was on this team. I mean, you're talking about a legendary team in Manchester United, uh, undone 
by a, uh, a mostly unfancied, at least in the soccer intelligentsia at that time, uh, Estudiantes. And, um, but they were crowned the Intercontinental Cup champions uh, of, that, um, of that year. And, uh, but they're just, just a ton of games, a ton of legendary players uh, and memories and that kind of stuff. And it's no longer, uh, but it has uh, created a legacy that FIFA is trying to uh, continue and broaden. And that's what we're uh, going to set our sights on this week. Our conversation with Dan Williamson as we talk about uh, the the fascinating competition of the Intercontinental Cup coming up in just a few moments time. All right, before we get there, let's uh, do a little promotional thing here that uh, I think kind of synthesizes uh, the uh, intercontinental sort of club approach to a world championship and that of the World Cup, the national team uh, championship, the quadrennial uh, event that we're getting ready for coming right up. Uh, I have a, uh, a brand new copy of a wonderful book that I highly recommend uh, that I'd like to give away to you. It's called New Kids in the World Cup the totally late 80s and early 90s tale of the team that changed American soccer forever. Uh, it is published by the University of Nebraska Press, and it is written by Adam Elder. And it's a, a fascinating look into uh, a topic that we've um, uh, explored on a number of different occasions uh, on this here very podcast, uh, in particular, probably the, uh, most recently with our pal Hal Phillips. We talked about his book, Generation Zero. Um, we uh, really didn't want to sort of uh, go sort of back down the same kind of uh, rabbit hole of intrigue on that com- uh, that uh, that conversation. But uh, this book is uh, an excellent uh, recount of what was going on in the late 80s and the early 90s and how the U.S. national team uh, stepped up for the, for the longest time after 40 years being away in the wilderness into the 1990 World Cup in Italy. And uh, it's it's a fantastic book. and. Um, it's got some excellent pictures in there too, uh, and again, uh, it is uh, a wonderful read, and we'd love to give you a copy. So here's what we're going to do: we're going to give away a copy of New Kids in the World Cup by Adam Elder uh, to the first person that emails us to hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com uh, with the answer to this trivia question. We know 1990, obviously in Italy, was the World Cup in which the United States uh, played three games and. <laughs> Quickly bowed out, but uh, look, it was a breakthrough for them and uh, set the tone for what was to come uh, thereafter and regular appearances thereafter. Uh, Let's uh, go back then to 1990 and tell me, please, who won the Intercontinental Cup that year? What club won the uh, Intercontinental, he says, Cup? Uh, Again, it was also known as the Toyota Cup by this time. Uh, But in 1990, who won? the Intercontinental Cup, and what team did they defeat? So I need to know the name of the 1990 Intercontinental Cup champion. It's a club team. And what club team that they defeat to win that title? Again, also known as the Toyota Cup that year. So if you're digging into your brain or you're looking online and stuff, uh, again, the 1990 Intercontinental or Toyota Cup winner, as well as the team that they defeated uh, in that year's Competition 1990. Uh, again, hello at Good Seats Still Available. Be the first one. We timestamp them so we kind of know who uh, who enters it first. And uh, the first person with the correct answer will get a copy of this book by Adam Elder uh, from uh, the University of Nebraska Press, New Kids in the World Cup, 
the totally late 80s, early 90s tale of the team that changed American soccer forever. Thank you, University of Nebraska Press, he says, uh, and Adam for uh, giving us a copy of the book to uh, to promote and to give away. We're happy to do so. And uh, let's get into now the Intercontinental Cup story, the Toyota Cup story, the club championship story. Uh, it's fascinating. It's great stuff, and it's coming right up. Here's our conversation we had with Dan just a few weeks back. Please, as always, enjoy. Give me a sense of like how you come to this topic. So my first book that I wrote was A History of Boca Juniors, which is a famous team in Argentina. And when I was, I mean, their greatest ever night was in 2000 when they beat Real Madrid for the Intercontinental Cup. So most of their fans, probably of a certain age, but most of their fans would say that that is the greatest night in their history. And, you know, when I was researching for the Boca Juniors book and, and looking for material on the Intercontinental Cup, there just isn't really anything out there. Um, I looked, you know, I mean, online you get quite a bit in, you know, of, of, from a South American perspective, but in a European context, it's just, it's not really talked about that, that often. So I just thought to myself, well, okay, I'm looking around here. There's nothing about the Intercontinental Cup. I think it's a really fascinating competition that, that sort of takes me back to another era. So um, that, that's how I, how I sort of came about and decided to write the book, to fill a gap in the market and, and to write about something that I thought was really fascinating. Well, uh, fulfilling that sort of proverbial, like if you don't see a book uh, that you really want to read, then you kind of have to write it, right? Well, this is why I wrote the Boca Juniors book as well. If you if you sort of rewind a couple of years ago when when that book was about to be published, um, I was it was about 2018 when Boca Juniors were playing in the Copa Libertadores, which is the South American Champions League, and when when that was there, I was I was thinking, okay, I want to read a bit more about the club's history. So I was looking on Amazon for books in English and there just isn't, there wasn't anything. So, so I kind of filled that gap as well, where there was nothing in English and um, my book became the first full length history of Boca Juniors in the English language. So, so yeah, I think, I think that's, you know, that's really important. You know, sometimes you can write a book that's just about a passionate subject, but I think if you can do that and fill a gap in the market, then um, you're, you're onto a winner, hopefully. Well, let, 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 maybe we can start with what I'm guessing is the 1977 version of the cup, right? Which is that kind of where the, the Boca Juniors kind of uh, the story for you kind of centers or, or emanates from? So you mean the um, the Boca Juniors book in terms of, I mean, no, I mean, I'm, uh, the Boca Juniors book, we're, we're looking at the, the 2001 mainly. That was the sort of greatest night. But yeah, I'm, the, the, I, I, I cover the whole history of the, the, the club from, from 1905 when it was um, created all the way up until the modern day. But yeah, we, I, I really did look at the, the Intercontinental Cup games in particular and because because that's massive for the club. Um, and that's one of the interesting things about this competition as well is that for the South American teams, it's absolutely huge. It's 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 the kind of pinnacle of their, their history for a lot of them. They see it as we win our domestic league, we then win the South American Cup, and then we go on to win the Intercontinental Cup. And then we've kind of, you know, cracked the, the sort of world, the world, you know, the world champions basically of, of club football for Europeans, um, mainly for the sort of Northern European teams, it's less like that, which is what I found when I was doing the book that a lot of the, you know, the English teams and, and from other kind of North, Northern European countries, they were less enamored with the competition. Um, but, but for South American teams in particular, it was a massive part of their history. Got it. Okay, so my, my apologies because Boca obviously won uh, the the title in uh, for the 2000 season as well as the 2003 season, right? So 
Um, I, that's when it was known as the Toyota Cup, I'm guessing, right? At that point? Yeah, so it became it. It well, I mean, it depends who you ask. It, it yes, was always that's why it I'm was asking. always yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was always the Intercontinental Cup for me, you know, but also for for sponsorship reasons from 1980 onwards, it was kind of dual branded as the Toyota Cup, and actually they gave out two cups each year from 1980 onwards. So you had the classic Intercontinental Cup trophy. Um, and then you also had a second cup, which was given to the vice captain. So instead of one person going up to collect the trophy, you had two people and they were both given a, a separate trophy. So um, that's kind of the toy where the Toyota Cup comes into it. And yet other people called it the, the you know, the Europe South America Cup. And um, in Brazil, they call it the Mundial. So um, it's a cup of many different names. Well, I, let's go back to its origin, though, because um, what I found fascinating and, and, you know, when I as I was growing up and sort of being. Uh, more conscious, shall we say, of of the world's game, literally outside of the North American Soccer League, right? That there was this big bl- big world of of soccer out there that that you kids in the United States have no idea, right? Um, the uh, this thing called the internet, uh, the Intercontinental Cup, um, was essentially sort of uh, described to me, kind of as a I don't know, a de facto World Club Championship, which comes with many asterisks, right? But I think it it goes all the way back to its origination, because it, for a long time, obviously from the beginning, was not an official competition per se, or at least sanctioned as such, nor, um, shall we say, fully vetted qualification-wise, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, it kind of depends who whose perspective that you 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 take into account. So FIFA, who are obviously the kind of world governing body of the of the sport, they they didn't recognize the the Intercontinental Cup till well it's, it's within the last decade so throughout the throughout its history from from 1960 all the way up until it finished in 2004 there was there was a fight back from FIFA because they said this isn't a FIFA competition this isn't a world you know a world club um, competition because you've got two two continents taking part you know what about North America what about Asia what about Africa um so so you know FIFA would have always said, actually, no, this isn't a this isn't a World Cup. This is actually a well. They wanted it to be designated as a friendly between two confederations. So, so that's kind of how it had to be. But for UEFA, who are the European um, governing body, for Comnebol, who were the South American governing body, for them it was an official game. They list on their website and and on you know on all their kind of official. Um, official stuff that this, that, you know, this is an official tournament for them and all the clubs that took part, you know, for them, it's an official competition as well. So it kind of depends on who you ask. But yeah, it, the thing with, uh, you know, in, in 1960, when it began, Europe and South America really did rule the roost in football. You know, they, they kind of alternated the World Cups. So one, one, one version, it would be in Europe. Four years later, it'd be in South America and so on. So they really did kind of dominate the the landscape of football in those early days. And you know, you could probably argue that that even today, it's obviously football's on the rise in in your part of the world, um, and you know, there's there's good clubs and historic clubs in Asia and Africa. But I think most people would probably say that the the biggest and best clubs. I mean, now it's obviously Europe. It's it's becoming more and more cent- centralized in Europe, but you've still got the sort of classic old historical clubs in South America as well. So, so that that's probably where the bulk of the you know the big clubs come from. If you fast forward it to to the the World Club Championship that we have now. Your European clubs are just dominating it. You know they have they have resources that clubs anywhere else in the world would only dream of. 
Yeah, look, so I, I mean, I, again, this harkens to your point earlier. It harkens back to when the world game was uh, still largely dominated by those two continents, right? So the idea of even coming up with a an unofficial championship, so to speak, between the two clearly dominant and most powerful and most talent-rich regions of the world is not too much of a stretch by any imagination, right? I could see maybe FIFA's resistance to officializing it, but with all due respect, right? I mean, to your point, certainly on the on the global World Cup level, um, it's it's pretty clear that you know the the any kind of competition between uh, a fully vetted European champion and a fully vetted South American champion, at least at that in that age, made a whole lot of sense as being a de facto international championship. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could liken it to um, to sort of bring it closer to home for you. You know, like in American sports, I, I don't I don't know too much about American sports, but you know, baseball. I know that's the World Series when it's actually just teams from within the United States. But realistically, everyone knows that that whoever wins, you know, Major League uh, Baseball is is the best baseball team in the world, right? And the same with the NFL, and the same with NBA, and you know, they are the best teams in the world just because they've not then gone and played against all the other teams doesn't mean you can't call them the the best team in the world, um, if that makes sense. Um, you know, like I say, I don't really know too much about your your sports over there, but that's kind of how I kind of liken it to that is that, yes, it was just two continents taking part, but realistically, everybody knew that whoever won that game was the best team in the world. It's a little unfair on the other teams outside of that that were kind of, you know, not not, not included, but... You know, realistically, that was that was um, they were the best teams, and and it was a really it was a really equal competition. So it, over the course of forty three versions, twenty two South American winners and twenty one European winners, which is is just brilliant. And that was another thing that really attracted me to this competition. That it was just it just finished in a time when the balance of power was really starting to shift over to Europe. Um, and like I said before, the game is so centralized in Europe now in terms of the the finances and the best players and the best coaches, et cetera. But previously, previous to 2000, you couldn't actually say that, you know, there were players that obviously went over to, to Europe from South America, you know, starting from the eighties and, and into the nineties, but you, you still had re- some really strong teams where it's, you know, for example, a Brazilian team that's just full of Brazilians uh, Argentinian team that's full of Argentinians and they're really strong, really competitive, you know, not just in their domestic league, but also, it, you know, on the continent and then against European teams as well. So tell me how this thing comes about, because uh, like a lot of things, right, it seems like there was an informality uh, touring clubs and, and um, uh, teams that were essentially winning their regional or domestic championships uh, kind of meeting together or being put together by promoters, probably, and maybe in, unofficially being sort of uh, described as sort of the best meeting the best. But I also think, too, you know, 1960 or so, there had to be some level of, um, shall we call it competitive definition or qualification, right? Because it's not just like you just magically wave a wand and say, okay, this team in, in, in Europe and then this team in South America are the quote-unquote best teams, let's put them together. Yeah, so as you say, there were you know going back to sort of early nineteen early nineteen hundreds really when a lot of the clubs that that we know know and love today are kind of uh, you know they they were incepted sort of at that time. There's always been tours, you know, that teams going over to South America team you, you know South American teams going over to Europe. There've been a few ad hoc competitions as well. 
where teams from different countries would play each other. But there was nothing really ever kind of, and, and this is where I think the Intercontinental Cup was sort of groundbreaking in that sense. There was never anything that was organized and annual. So I think that's the important distinction. You know, there were other cups. Some of them lasted a couple of years or maybe more, but this was every year and this was organized. And this this gave a real pathway to teams. And, and that's where the South American interest came in because the European Cup came in in 1955. So that was created then. So the Copa Libertadores, the South American version, that kicked off in 1960. And one of the key drivers for the South Americans was if we create our own continental competition we can then pitch the winner of that against the European one. So it was, it was really inspired by the, the, um, the European Cup. And then you've got that pathway then. So if you're, if you're an ambitious team in Brazil or Argentina or Uruguay, you know that if you win your league, you can then go and play in the South American Cup. And then if you win that, you can then go and play Europe's, Europe's finest team. So that's kind of, that's kind of how it came about really was – it was that inspiration from the European Cup that, that kind of really got the South Americans interested. And, you know, Real Madrid have got a lot to sort of be thankful for for that because they won the first five versions of the European Cup and, you know, an amazing team um, with that Ferenc Pushkas from um, Hungary, um, Alfredo Di Stefano from Argentina. So some of these kind of, you know, real stars that they, they had the all-white kit, you know, really kind of romantic, you know, historic amazing team that that got the South Americans kind of enamored and then that's that's kind of what led to to the Copa Libertadores and then to the Intercontinental Cup so in essence so for for our fan, for our listeners who are not sort of in the weeds on sort of the, the history of, of of soccer on the on the world stage right see in essence UEFA oversees uh the game and did of was the time on the continent and this thing now I guess we kind of know as sort of the the uh, the Champions League, but but it, back in the day, right, circa 1960, we're talking about something. It was it was essentially known as the European Champion Clubs Cup. Is that right? Or or the European? Uh, it was called something along those lines. With where on whereas South America was do, was Common Bowl. That's their uh, their federation, and the yes. Libertadores was was essentially their equivalent and relatively new, I guess, almost by uh, emulation, I guess, of Europe. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, as you say, rightly say, UEFA are the the kind of governing body that oversee club football in Europe. So all of the competitions that that are kind of pan European. So you know that they they created that European. And yes, it had. I think the official name was something like the European Champions Club Cup, but everyone everyone just called it the European Cup. Um, and yeah, that was basically all of the champions of the Europe, the UEFA nations. In a in a knockout tournament to you know until you get down to the, to the final and then you've got a champion. Um, yes, it, it, in the early nineties it kind of morphed into the Champions League, um, but that the Champions League is is kind of like a follow on from the European Cup. They've just created a sort of league system first, and then I guess again I guess it's like the the playoffs in in US sport where you have you have those group stages first. And then the best teams from those group stages will progress to a sort of knockout playoff round. Um, so yeah, the, the Copa Libertadores is the the equivalent from South America. And I think in 1960, when it first started, there were probably only because don't forget in South America there are only ten nations who who are part of Comnebol. So there were probably only I think seven teams in the first version, and now it's obviously expanded. And I think in the present day, you've probably got 32 teams. So it's moved on from being just the champions to 
I mean, in Brazil and Argentina's case nowadays, it's, I think it's something like seven or eight teams from each country go, go forward into it. All right. So I'm really curious as the process of how this comes about then and the mechanics of it, right? Because uh, a couple of things come to mind. Number one, uh, the seasons of both Europe and South America are not uh, uh, always aligned, shall we say. And then number two is the very nature of these knockout competitions on the uh, on the regional stage. Uh, those always uh, essentially are they're not run concurrent to the current season. They're actually a result of what occurred the season before, right? So as a team who perhaps, you know, won their country's um, uh, domestic league, right? Part of the spoils of that is that they get entered into uh, this champion level competition against other similar champions the next season, even though that next season may be not as good as uh, their previous season. So was, for, to the American viewer or, or person coming into understanding this, it, it's a, it's a bit of an odd concept because it's almost a, uh, I guess you'd call it a lagging indicator or a residual effect of what literally happened on the field the season before. Yeah, it is a bit strange because, yeah, for, as you say, you know, you could win the, so your, the European calendar tends to go from summer to summer. So you you tend to start the season in the August and then you finish in the May. And that's when all the big finals would be in the sort of May time. So it's kind of like, um, yeah, kind of like a school calendar, if you like, uh, where, where it's summer to summer. Um, and yes, you could say that if you won your domestic league in, say, 1967, and you won that in May 1967, you'd then go into the following season's European Cup, which would begin in sort of August, September. And then if you won that, that could be over a year since you won your domestic league. And then you'd probably have to wait another six months to go and play in the Intercontinental Cup. So it could be 18 months after you won your domestic league that you then go and play the Intercontinental Cup. So what you found in in later years was that teams, by the time they'd won their domestic league, they completely changed. You know, they've gone 18 months later, other, you know, players leave, players come in, the coach changes. So yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess from that point of view, it is um it is a little bit different to your sport, but as I was saying before, for you guys, it's, you know, for example, in, in American football, it's the Super Bowl and that's the end. And then you start again from a complete fresh, don't you, the following season. Um, football, yeah, soccer sort of in Europe and South America just just works a little bit differently. So so that's how it works from from, from that point of view. In terms of the calendar as well in, in South America, historically, it's tended to be the calendar year. So they, they tend to kind of go from January to December. And... That was a crucial part of of this this competition because the South American teams, when they came to play this cup in in the later months of the year, it was kind of like the pinnacle of the season, if you like. So for a European team, if you're going from August to May, if you have to play in December and you have to travel to South America in the early days, or then if you have to travel to Tokyo in you know eight, 1980 onwards, that is a real challenge you know to you're in the middle of your season you may be halfway through your league campaign you might be in in a cup and then all of a sudden you have to travel to south america or japan and you know the the, the problems involved in traveling with the especially back then the logistics of traveling you know it's not like it is now where you can go on a really nice flight you know first class where you've got beds and everything you know back then it was quite a difficult challenge and sometimes they take three, four flights. There are even examples where they're flying, you know, via Alaska um, to Tokyo. So I think for European teams, it was a real challenge in the middle of a season, whereas for the South American teams, it's actually 
the end of the season. They've they've played all the domestic games, they've played the South American games, and then it's the kind of almost like the final game of the year. So there was a real kind of build up for them, and that's a, that's part of the reason why for them it was such a huge thing because it's that kind of it's you know it's almost like the Super Bowl for them. Whereas for the Europeans, it's like the middle of the season. Does that make sense? It does. It also presages, though, what I think we we know today ad nauseum, right, which is sort of competition congestion or cup congestion or whatever, right? We More cups, more, you know, simultaneous or, or, or afterwards and stuff. I, I guess the question in there is, OK, assuming that some sane individuals might have sort of anticipated that and recognized that adding this, at least at the outset, two legged competition uh, with, you know, not so modern, but incre- increasingly modern travel capabilities. Um, did anybody, how does this thing still come together? Is the is the basic answer, as I would imagine, money? Or was it other things that made this come together? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would probably say that the, the reason was money because, you know, obviously that this was in an era in, you know, 1960 and probably all the way up until the, the late 90s, I would say, where the biggest income for any football team is is the gate receipts. So, you know, the biggest teams back then were always the ones who had the biggest biggest stadiums. They could attract the most fans. You know, most of the time, the, the most successful teams were teams with, you know, 40, 50, 60,000 seats because they could, you know, bring in the most cash, then they could spend that cash on players. So there was that consideration. And if we go back to the 1967 version, Celtic played, um, this was a quite an infamous game. They played against Racing Club, who were from Argentina. And they played, first of all, they played in, in Scotland, then they played in Argentina, and then they needed a playoff. Now, they'd had two games against each other already that were quite violent, and the second one was increasingly violent. And there was a lot of talk from the Celtic end that, actually, you know, we don't want to play this third game because we it's you know we don't like the way that this has been handled. We don't like our treatment. So we might just go home. And then one of the key considerations for them to play that game was the fact that they would you know, have some of the gate receipts. So, so yes, I would say that the, the, the sort of traveling from continent to continent, a lot of it was through gate receipts. I would also say that in a certain way that there was a lot of uh, an element of that, that pr- kind of sporting pride as well. You know, it, it, the exotic nature of traveling to another continent to go and take on the best. Um, I would say that that's a factor as well. But as you rightly say, the, 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 the cash would have been a, would have been a big bonus as well. Well, it also seems to me too. So maybe you can describe sort of the first competition, right? So in 1960, it was um, not uncommon uh, as most of the club competitions were in most of the civilized world, shall we say, were two-legged affairs. Um, And it also, and this, by the way, this fits fits neatly into themes of, of that we see in in the various explorations we do of U.S. and North American teams and situations and stuff. The press has something to do with this, right? So maybe you can describe sort of the the first of these competitions and sort of the residual effects and and how maybe the press kind of puts uh, makes more of all of this and perhaps maybe uh, adds to the lore or maybe creates the lore around this competition. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the early days were massive. Um, you know, the first, I would probably say the first six or seven editions from 1960 up to 1966 were actually, you know, you could probably argue it's the golden era. You know, you've got the, the, the games that always seem to be a lot of goals in the games. You've got some iconic stadia as well. 
You've got some legends playing. I mentioned already uh, Di Stefano and Puskas from um, Real Madrid. You've got a guy from um, Peñarol, which is a Uruguayan team, Alberto Spencer. He's from Ecuador, but he played uh, most of his football for Peñarol and he was like a, a fearsome goal scorer. And then Pelé as well from Brazil, who played for Santos. You know, so you've got these kind of, you've got these legendary players and, you know, we're talking about some of the best sort of most historic, famous stadia in the world and, and 100,000 fans in there, you know, the, the first edition that was won by Real Madrid when they played Peñarol in 1960, over the course of the two games, well over 200,000 people um, were in the stadium. You had a TV oh, audience. Maracanã alone, right, is just, uh, you know, gigantic, and, and uh, but you can imagine, right? Absolutely huge, yeah. I mean, there's... It's it's difficult some, with some of these early games to actually to actually find out exactly what the um, what the, the attendance was. You know, it's not like it is nowadays where everything's controlled and you kind of know down to the one exactly what the uh, attendance was. You read a lot of kind of conflicting things, but yeah, in the American R, you're talking sometimes you're probably talking a couple of hundred thousand just in that stadium alone in the early days. But yeah, so so you've got you've got hundreds of thousands of people in the stadiums. You've got there was a TV audience of 150 million over 13 countries, which again, by today's standard doesn't seem like a lot, but back then when not everybody had a TV in 1960, um, and, and if they did, it would probably would have been a small black and white thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I mentioned in the book, there's a, there's a journalist who, who sort of covers the game in Madrid, um, that this 1960 version, and, and he's kind of, he was, you know, flitting between the Rome Olympics and this game. So, and, 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 you know, there was a lot of talk on the streets of Madrid that this was bigger than the Olympics, you know, that, that the Olympics kind of almost turned into a secondary event. And this is what really caught everyone's imagination. So, so I think in those early days, you know, it, it was really special. And I, I also think that nostalgically what happened in the, the sort of years afterwards probably also adds to that, um, you know, legendary status that because the cup, went into a bit of a violent era and then it declined that everyone looks back at those early days and thinks wow you know that was so great all right what's this prize picks my goodness of course the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports is prize picks what is it well glad you asked literally it's straightforward and the simplest and most fun way you can do daily fantasy sports. All you got to do is pick as few as two or as many as five different players in a sport or, frankly, across a whole multitude of sports and simply predict whether those players will get more or less than their projection. Maybe in baseball, that's strikeouts. Uh, They're going to pitch more or less strikeouts than predicted. Uh, How about uh, in football? That could be touchdown passes. Uh, In basketball, that could be three-point shot attempts made, uh, et cetera. Uh, Literally, all you got to do is pick whether they're more or less than their predicted outcomes. And you can choose and mix and match sports as well. You don't have to pick two or three or four or five players in just one sport. No, you can pick a couple of players in across different sports. And boy, oh boy, when I say different sports, Prize Picks has a wide variety. It's all the major leagues and sports that you can think of from the NFL and Major League Baseball, all the way into various niche sports. Sports? Sports? No, sports like MMA or disc golf, uh, perhaps even lacrosse or um, various forms of boxing or even esports. Prize Picks has daily fantasy picks for you across all of those and more. Again, 
Try them out. It's really easy and it's a hell of a lot of fun and you can win big bucks too. You can go the flex play model, which basically means you don't have to choose and succeed with every single one of your picks, but you'll still get paid. Or you can go the power play mode, which basically rewards you with more money if you get every single one of your predictions correct. It's awesome and it's uh, fun to play for sure. And that really uh, brings uh, uh, your live sports uh, viewing into uh, a whole different realm of excitement. And of course, we've got a promo for you as well. So all you got to do is download the Prize Picks app on your uh, Android or your Apple device, or go to PrizePicks.com. That's P-R-I-Z-E-P-I-C-K-S.com, and sign up and play your daily fantasy sports right now. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code GOODSEATS. So if you deposit $100, prize picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, prize picks will give you $50. Again, don't forget to enter the promo code GOODSEATS when you sign up at prizepicks.com or on the prize picks app and get that instant deposit match right up to $100. Go for it. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Thank you, prize picks. And now back to our conversation. You're essentially describing the 60s as this competition essentially is up and running as 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 um, pretty intense affairs, especially on the field. Um, I think some of it maybe also has to do with, um, dare I say, maybe the more South American style, which is a little bit more aggressive maybe than the European, or am I being too overly simplistic? Um, possibly. You know, I, know I think I think th- there is there is a clear distinction with the. And this this kind of came to bear in the the game in when I mentioned before when Celtic of Scotland played against Racing of Argentina, that the, there is a different there is a difference in the cultural aspect. So, you know, Racing didn't like the the sort of physical nature of Celtic's game, but what Celtic didn't like was the the kind of the ways that Racing would try and con the referee, or you know, it would be maybe simulation, you know, of, of diving on the floor when there's nobody near them, you know? So there is, there is definitely a distinction in, in the, the sort of cultures of the football, especially back then. Um, now, now it's probably less pronounced, but. So that would saying, def- I'm sorry, you're saying the style of play actually, and maybe I have it reversed, right. But, but the European yeah. style <laughs> and the, and the South American style, maybe even specific countries within those regions can add a little, maybe a lot of of uh, edge, shall we say, to the the style of play of these matches. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when when the um, when the sort of British people took football to South America, there was a lot of, you know, that it, for the for the British early players over there, you know, it was all very about being gentlemanly. Yes, it would be. Yes, it would be physical. Yes, you know, they'd, they'd be strong and. And, and firm in the tackle and, and, you know, in the challenge, et cetera. But it was all very gentlemanly. You know, they, they, they like to play on really plush green grass and the South American game kind of evolved. I mean, you look at someone like a Diego Maradona, his game was honed on the sort of rough streets where, you know, it, you're probably talking about a street with holes, you know, holes in it. And he's probably not playing with a, a perfect leather football. So it kind of, that's how the, the South American game developed was playing in the tight spaces near the ports. And that kind of then creates the the style of player that you see where they've probably got a little bit more creativity. They've probably got a little bit more ingenuity as opposed to the European teams where it's a bit more structured and rigid and formulaic. 
All right, so uh, let's uh, go through a little bit of this. So the the original the uh, the original format of these matches in the '60s was a points based st- system, correct? And then it kind of changed into a, more of an aggregate uh, format that we kind of know today. Uh, what what was that all about? And was 1967 uh, the the aforementioned series between uh, Celtic and Rossing? Um, it seems to me like that was a, a turning point, I guess, as the '60s were rolling on with this competition, and maybe that was one of them. Yeah, so it was a it was a year or two after that where they changed the format. So as you say, the first the first few editions were you'd basically if you win if you win five nil, you get you you know it's classed as, as as three points for a win or two points for a win, and then if you if the other team wins the second game one nil, that's also classed as a as two points for a win. So there's no kind of there's no kind of incentive really to go and score five, six, seven goals if the other team can then win by one and they still have the same kind of points. And then what that led to was uh, was these playoffs, which were always a bit always a bit problematic because logistically as well, you know, you have to arrange a game at short notice. And the rule was that if the second leg had taken place in Europe, then obviously for logistical reasons, the the playoff would be in Europe. Now then you're almost guaranteeing that the European team would win that that playoff. Um, and yeah, as I said, it was it was problematic as well because there's there's versions where a team would win five nil and then they'd lose one nil. How is that fair? You know that shouldn't be the case. So they changed they changed it later in the sixties. But I suspect as well that some of that was that you know in 1967 that playoff was was such carnage and it, it was favourable to just avoid that kind of thing and just have those two games. So they changed it to aggregate scoring where if you scored five goals and then you lost by one, you would win because you scored more in the win there. So that's how it kind of changed in the late sixties. And then obviously in 1980, it went to Japan and it was just a one-off game from there on in. All right, I want to get to that in a, in a minute, but uh, yeah, you looking over the 1960s, right? From one, two, three, four of these, um, uh, these uh, series went to the, that playoff, right? Which is, logistically hugely a nightmare right because you literally became a third game that had to be i guess you could say hastily arranged um and it would just uh it instead of making it a best of three it's sort of this uh, and 1967 being an example of that right that's just i mean we've already described how logistically uh and laggardly challenging this competition is in order to get to this sort of quote-unquote champion of the world so to speak right uh but you can imagine just how 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 just difficult and challenging, and you throw in all the travel on top of that. Um, it just seems maddening. I guess maybe hindsight being twenty twenty, right? I guess back in the day, though, it seems like there was no shortage of interest in this competition, right? Just by looking at some of the crowds and I guess the intensity and the I don't know informally formal belief that this is truly a crowning of a world champion, so to speak. Yeah, I, I think I think it's just just a sort of an aid, you know, as things move on now, we look back and think, yeah, it, what a silly idea. But I think it was just more normal back then. I mean, we have a competition in in England, which is um, the FA Cup, which is quite a famous competition, a cup gate cup competition, and there's even talk about the moment because there are still some replays. You know, if you draw the first game, you have a replay, and there's talk about getting you know getting rid of the replay. But but you know, years ago, you would have you just have replay upon replay upon replay. So if a game is is drawn, you just keep going. You have another game the following week and then you keep going until you find a winner rather than 
you know, what probably makes sense is that you have a little bit of extra time in a game and then if necessary, you go to penalty kicks. So I think it's probably just like a a, a modern thing that we've moved away from it. But as I said before, like that, the, the problem with the playoffs as well is that it, the four times it happens, it's always on the continent of where the second leg is, is where the game is held. But that team always then won their, won the playoffs. So it's an unfair advantage really because for example, if you look at 1961, Peñarol played Benfica. The first leg was in Lisbon. The second leg was in um, Uruguay. Because it was a draw, they played the third game in Uruguay. And it's you're effectively giving the, the Uruguayan team two games uh, in front of their home fans and the other team won. So it's, it's an unfair advantage, really. Um, and they always won the game. You know, whichever, whichever team had that home advantage always won the playoff. So it was a bit problematic and made sense, I think, in in um, you know the late sixties to change that. So so tell me how those changes happened and, and what you know more more vividly sort of constituted. Right, the sixty seven was a a brutal series, but it seems also that the the uh, the the uh, years afterwards was sort of no less intense. Um, and I think, as you sort of state in your book, it. it it kind of was a bit of a harbinger. I don't know if people sort of recognized it at the time, but it, it did decline a bit uh, in terms of its, and maybe because of this viciousness. So maybe sort of describe sort of the, what I guess is kind of a turning point in 67 and, and then how that sort of leads into the 70s because um, uh, it's still no less intense and uh, seemingly valued uh, a championship, but it seems like it's becoming at, at a cost or maybe numerous costs. Yeah, I think that, the key years here are 1967 to 1970. So there's a bit of um, there's a bit of historical context that we have to add in here. So what happens is that the Brazilian teams, so the Brazilian Federation is kind of at, at loggerheads with um, with the South American Confederation, numerous reasons. But one of them was that they 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 didn't like the Copa Libertadores format. So you go from having just, as I said before, you know, it started off where it was just the champions in each country. And then um, the, the South American governing body towards the end of the 60s said, actually, we want to make this a bigger competition. So why don't we also have um, the cup winner, the, you know, the domestic cup winner or the the second place team in the league? So the, the Brazilian federation were, were against this. And there was other things that were happening as well, but that was one of them. And also Santos, who who is who Pelé played for, they were kind of almost losing interest in the Copa Libertadores because they were, you know, they kind of almost felt that, you know, what we've we've kind of we've we've been there, we've we've got the T-shirt, you know, what? Why do we need to keep playing this? And actually, to keep Pelé, who was the, the the best player in the world, they they decided in the end to go on these crazy money-spinning tours around the world. Oh, North America in particular, right? Arguably the seeds of how they ultimately came in 75 to the New York Cosmos, right? They played many, many uh, matches in New York and North America for that. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. They, they went on this crazy this crazy kind of world tour. Um, they, they, as you say, they played in, in the US, they played in New York, they played in Egypt, they played in Sudan, Hong Kong. Um, one of I spoke to a, a journalist who is a Santos fan, and he told me that in 1969 they played in Nigeria, which was in a civil war at the time, and they they had a ceasefire for this game. And to this day, Santos fans will have a banner in the stadium that that basically declares that they are the team that stopped a war. So I mean, you, you could probably write a book alone about that kind of thing. Um, so they went on this 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 tour where they were earning lots of money to keep Pele happy, effectively. So 
So what, what happens then in the Copa Libertadores, and obviously that, that affects the Intercontinental Cup, is that Brazilian teams aren't really involved in the late 60s. So because Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay were historically the three dominant countries, what happens is that Argentina, Uruguay obviously are in there as well, but mainly Argentinian teams, in the absence of the Brazil teams, they dominate the Copa Libertadores. So between 67 and 75, only one Uruguayan team wins the, the Copa Libertadores and the rest are Argentinian. The first time a Brazilian team wins the Copa Libertadores after that is 1976. So you've got like a decade where they're kind of in the wilderness on a South American um, stage. So that's that, that brings the Argentinian teams to the fore. A couple of other important things to mention is Argentina in the late 60s were um, they they had a they had a, a military coup so six military coups in the 20th century in Argentina one of them was in 66 so just a year before the Racing and Celtic game so you know you've got this kind of atmosphere in 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 society and and you know sport always mirrors what's going on in society doesn't it you know what where pe- people like to sometimes put sport in isolation but actually sport is always linked to what's going on in society for me. And in Argentina at the time, you have this kind of quite nasty atmosphere and this, you know, military regime. Obviously, there's connotations of violence. So that's one thing to mention. The other thing is that in the 58 World Cup, going back to that, Argentina had been isolated from international football for and, and the World Cup in particular for the best part of a couple of decades for various reasons. But... In the, when they when they get back involved with the World Cup in 1958, they get beat 6-1 by Czechoslovakia. And they realise that actually this isolation has done them no favours. You know, back on their home turf in the domestic game, that's kind of that, that period between, you know, 30s, 40s and early 50s is classed as the golden era in Argentinian football because you've got massive crowds, you've got loads of, you know, big high-scoring football matches and they thought that they were, you know, unbeatable. And then they come back out of their international isolation and get hammered by Czechoslovakia. And they, they're like, oh my God, what's happening here? And what happened then is this kind of led to a, you know, rather than them playing exciting, creative, romantic football, it, it led to a win at all costs mentality. So that kind of, and you know, you, you look at that and the violence in the air with the military coup, Argentinian football became very cynical. So, that that's really what led to like the likes of Racing in 1967, you know, you've and then Estudiantes who played 68, 69, and 70. You've got these teams and these these versions of the Intercontinental Cup where there's just a lot of violence, there's a lot of cynicism. They'll do anything to win, you know. They'll 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 literally do anything to win, and and that's why you see a lot of violent episodes in those last four years of the 60s. Well, you're also though uh, there. Were, there it seems like there were a number of situations and teams that that uh, bowed out as well. Not unlike uh, the Br- Brazil overall, but I mean, Ajax uh, had some challenges with certain teams, and it looks like a, a, a couple of uh, years actually, seventy five and seventy eight, it wasn't even played at all. Um, I, it almost feels to me like there was sort of a growing. I would say indifference, but almost a uh, an opting out, I guess, by certain teams and and regions, perhaps for various reasons. Maybe some of it political, some of it uh, feelings of of, of co- previous competitions and or or fear of uh, uh, of security. Um, just seems like a, it became almost uh, more wild, shall we say? Yeah, I, I definitely think that's the case. I mean, you know, af- 
with 67 68 69 and 70 in particular they were the they were the real violent years you know there was the violent incidents each time um i mean probably the the, the worst one was in 1969 when um there was a player for milan ac milan from italy played estudiantes who were from um, argentina and one of the players from milan was actually argentinian by birth but he'd he'd now taken on a different citizenship um he'd taken a french citizenship actually when he went to play in, in Argentina, he was actually arrested for being a deserter because he hadn't com- um, completed his military service, which was an, an, to, to not do your military service in Argentina at this time under a military regime was a, a criminal offence. But what happened in the end was that he was able to say, you know, look, I'm now a French citizen. I've done my military service in France. And then he was released. But the press were absolutely, you know, they hounded him and, you know, he... He, he was battered and bruised. There's a really famous picture that I've, I've got in the book where he's basically, he's got a huge black eye because he's just battered and bruised during the game, spends a night in the police cell. And it's only the general who is the head of the military regime at the time who releases him from prison and then he can fly home um, back to Milan the following day. So that was a real, you know, that was a real kind of um, turning point. And they were so violent those four years. And I think what happens then is in 1971, Ajax win the European Cup and they've got to go and play Nacional, who are Uruguayan. So, okay, it's, it's not an Argentinian team, but I think there was just this, I think there's just this exhaustion of this idea of going over to South America to play these teams to, to, get, to get beaten up. And, you know, you just saw a lot of times in, in the 70s, four versions where the runner-up of the European Cup went in place of the champion. And then two versions altogether where the, where the runner-up of the European Cup couldn't help, couldn't step in, and then they just weren't held at all. So, you know, by the end of the 70s, you've got, you know, six versions really of this competition that didn't take place in the proper, in the proper way, if you know what I mean. So it almost feels like uh, almost like setting up boxing matches uh, where, you know, you have to kind of negotiate almost or, or, or choose to continue or, or to do it or not. And then if somebody doesn't, then it's sort of okay. We'll go to the next one, and then the next one on the on the on the totem pole. Almost almost having to kind of maybe negotiate uh, these two teams uh, for this supposed international championship. Uh, feels like people were. It was much more of an optional situation. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's I mean, using the boxing um, term, to, you know, the boxing sort of example is, is a perfect way of looking at it because it wasn't, as we said at the at kind of at the outset, that it wasn't a FIFA recognized official game. It was just a sort of friendly cooperation between two different um, confederations. There was that, they, you know, they had to agree, if they had to agree the dates, you know, there was no kind of set in stone date. There wasn't, it wasn't like, okay, every year we'll play on these dates. They had to agree the dates. So, you know, sometimes that if, if you look throughout the history of the, the, the cup, some of the dates differ wildly, you know, so some of them are in, in September, some of them are in, in December. Um, so there was that kind of having to organize it like that. And that changed in, which we'll come to in a minute, I guess, that changed in 1980 when the cup went to Tokyo. The European champions had to sign a contract um, before they entered the European Cup that if they won the European Cup, they, they were contractually obliged to then go and play in Japan in the, this competition. All right, so there are two things there that that maybe lead up to, to exactly that. So number one is money, or maybe lack thereof, and and why is this worth a potentially danger in certain situations if there wasn't a whole lot of money around it? And obviously, this is before 
you know, today's modern television ecosystem, although certainly in the 70s, television uh, was growing. But it's also um, my sense is that this uh, there were also people in the background, I think FIFA specifically related to that were already trying to kind of contemplate maybe what a world, a true world club championship might look like. And it seemed like the idea kind of get floated around every couple of years, but it didn't really solidify in anything sort of formal. So I guess two aspects in that question. One is money. And number two is formalizing this competition, not a new idea. I guess, obviously it wasn't 1980 didn't formalize it, but it certainly did bring money into it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, so obviously, as we've discussed, you know, you had those violent years, you had those years where teams were just declining to participate. This came to a head to, to, to lead into the sort of Tokyo era, if you like. This came to a head in, in 1979. So um, it, Nottingham Forest, who are a team from England, um, they won the European Cup in 79 and they declined to participate in the, in the, the Intercontinental Cup. The, the people that took their place, the team that took their place was a team called Malmo from Sweden, who are, you know, a tiny club on the sort of world stage. They also played against the South American champions who were from Paraguay. This was the first time in the history of the Copa Libertadores that a team not from Brazil, Argentina and Uruguay had won that competition. So you've got Olympia from Paraguay against Malmo from Sweden playing in the Intercontinental Cup. It was just, a, it was a version that was just kind of shorn of a, a big name. You know, it was it didn't capture the imagination. And, and after the 70s and, and the decline of the cup, it was the last thing it needed. In in Sweden, the first in, in the first game in Sweden, less than 5,000 people went to the stadium. So it was a real kind of, you know, a death knell for the competition, if you like. Fast forward to 1980, Nottingham Forest won the European Cup again, and they decided to play this time. They played Nacional from Uruguay. The, the reason why it ended up in Tokyo, they were trying to organise the two-legged version as normal. They couldn't come up with a date. And just when they were about to give up, and just when, for me, if, if that hadn't if, if that hadn't have gone ahead, I think the cup would have just died. Um, in step, this company called West Nally, who were from, based in London, I interviewed um, the Nally side of West Nally, a guy called Patrick Nally. Um, I interviewed him for the book, a really fascinating interview. Um, and, and he and his company stepped in and they basically got Toyota on board to sponsor the cup. And, you know, part of the, the sort of plan was to take it to Tokyo as a one-off game. And, you know, the, the clubs would have their expenses paid. They, you know, they would have all their expenses paid. So the flights, the hotels, the, the you know, money for while they're there to, to, to sort of live. And then there'd also be a prize fund as well. So it all of a sudden became much more attractive for the European teams. Not only were they contractually obliged, but they had that, that kind of, lure of money and you know just a one-off game as well so they didn't have to do the two legs so it, it all of a sudden became a lot more attractive to them well and standardized too which probably didn't hurt um i guess the question in there either before or after toyota signing on as a sponsor is why japan yeah well the guy so patrick nally he was he was involved a lot with um so he got involved with sort of organizing these kind of competitions he was involved in the 1978 world cup so he got Coca-Cola and FIFA together and Coca-Cola became one of the, the key sponsors for the 78 World Cup. He did something with, um, in Japan, the FIFA World Youth Championship in 1979. So Maradona, Diego Maradona was the star of that. He was only young at the time. I think he was 18 at the time. He was the star of that competition in 
in Tokyo, and that was sponsored by Coca-Cola as well. So he was kind of, Patrick Nally was kind of building these relationships. Um, he started working with all these different blue chip companies, and and one of them was Toyota. So he kind of had those relationships already, and then the Intercontinental Cup needed a home. Um, so that it kind of just came together like that. You know, Toyota was looking to expand globally as well, which it did. Um, and, you know, there was an economic, economic boom in Japan in the 80s and, and Toyota went from, you know, being not a small company. They'd, they'd, they'd been exporting cars since the 60s, I believe, but they really, in the 80s, it really took off and they became one of the biggest brands in the world. So so for them, it was just about that global visibility and it all just kind of came together in a, in a perfect storm, really. And that's how it ended up with Toyota in, in Tokyo. Yeah, it's the ultimate neutra- neutral site, I guess, too. Um, but it also is a, is a nod towards, um, and this will lead to my next question, is the, the true globalization of the game. I, I guess before I get to the, the, the sort of uh, the road to official FIFA-dom over time, um, I'm wondering, as a U.S. soccer fan at that time with the North American Soccer League, was the U.S. ever considered as as part of the hosting for, for this thing? Not that I'm aware of. I don't think there was any, um, I, I think, I think the, the Japanese thing was, was probably more of just a, not a coincidence, but as I say, you know, it was just because Patrick Nally was forging these relationships, you know, because Toyota was looking for a, you know, a sort of a, a competition to, to help, help with their global outreach, if you like. So I've, I've not read anything that would suggest that there was any kind of U.S um involvement anywhere now interesting because uh, obviously you know th- there's there's a whole bunch of other stuff behind the scenes right the, the nasl at the time was beginning to decline the cosmos were winning all the stuff and uh, there was talk about uh being the um uh the last minute uh replacement for the 1982 world cup um uh in the u.s uh to to because uh, i guess Colombia wasn't sort of capable of doing so and then obviously went to mexico i mean it, there's a lot of um uh, intrigue and, and a lot of wheels falling off, I guess, of the pro game at that time. I'm stirring something up that might not be there, but you one wonders that, you know, the U.S. was certainly um, trying to perhaps make a, a right, if you will, with the international game and FIFA in particular. But it also leads me, I guess, to uh, the, sort of the next inevitable question. And we'll get to the football, actually, at the end. Your your thoughts about like where some of the better games and players uh, were over the history of this 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 cup, but I, the question is really, um, how does the uh, the road to what is now known as the FIFA Club World Cup come about? Because as I hinted at before, there are a few entities that were essentially trying to make this competition much more formal. What you've just described with Toyota and West Nally sort of putting this single game tie uh, in 1980 going forward certainly helped the process uh, standardize a bit, but it didn't formalize it in the eyes of FIFA still yet. I'm guessing that that there were more official FIFA folks starting to figure out, you know what, we should really try to put this, uh, put a FIFA brand on top of all of this to make it truly official and statistically relevant and maybe even bring in some bucks further to this competition. Yeah, I think I, I always think with FIFA that, you know, you have to kind of read between the lines when they decide to do something, you know, that and it seemed like so so in the modern day, there seems to be like a real power struggle with UEFA who who have the Champions League, which is, you know, arguably behind the World Cup. It's arguably the biggest 
football competition there is out there and FIFA don't really get a slice of the pie. You know, UEFA are, are taking all that money. The FIFA FIFA have the World Cup, which is their big money spinner and UEFA have the Champions League. And, and you know, part of me thinks that that going back to this sort of two decades ago, there's a, there's an element of FIFA, you know, yes, they want, they want to grow the global game. That's kind of their remit. You know, they want to take the game to, to different corners of the world, you know, hence, you know, the world cup in, in the U S in 94 and, you know, they've taken the, the world cup to South Africa and, you know, it's in Qatar, you know, we know all this kind of that, that on a, on a superficial level, they have this, this, nice remit which is to spread the game but also behind it i think there's always like a, a sort of element of of control and power and and controlling the finances as well and and the sort of political sway and i think the fact that they were always trying to almost you know they, they, they were never on board with the intercontinental cup it was always inevitable that they were going to create their own version and they did that in 2000 so the, the intercontinental cup carried on until 2004 but FIFA were already trying to sort of muscle in on that territory as early as 2000. So in the 1999 Intercontinental Cup, six weeks after that was the first FIFA version of the, of the Club World Cup. So, you know, you can, you can really kind of see that they're, they're trying to stand on the toes um, of, of the Intercontinental Cup. They, they have teams from all the different confederations. Um, the, the problem is that then they try and do it again in 2001 and it collapses because their media partner... Um, went bankrupt so they they cancelled the 2001 version and then it doesn't happen for three years but then once the intercontinental cup declines and and ultimately ends in 2004 fifa just kind of step in and 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 take that void Um, and and it's been the fifa version ever since it's scheduled to grow as well so i believe that at some point they're looking to take it to 24 teams so it's Again, this goes back to what I was saying before, where they're trying to muscle in on that UEFA Champions League kind of money. And for them, they would love to have a kind of Champions League, but just for every team in the world, if that makes sense. So so they would really try and muscle in on that and try and turn that into a, a key event on the club football calendar. Well, sure, and and I think uh, the students, real students of, of of the of the game, right, recognize that there's there have been multiple attempts, right, beyond the ultimate world. Uh, World Cup uh, for the senior teams uh, of uh, of the various nations, right? To to try to figure out some level, whether it's real or or artificial, sort of you know a, a true or cup a championship, right? It's a manufactured or or real, and and arguably the Interna- Intercontinental Cup or Toyota Cup, depending on when, what year you're talking about, um, really was, I guess, the pretty closest thing you could find to a to a um, a true club champion in the absence of anything sort of formal and official, but but it sounds like to me like the there it was especially messy sort of at those last number of years of of the cup's existence as it um, I guess you wouldn't want to call it integrated into the FIFA uh, uh, club uh, uh, championship structure, but it's kind of effectively become that right. I mean, even to the point where FIFA now, if I have this right, officially recognizes. The previous cup winners as the essentially the previous winners of what is now the the FIFA championship. Yeah, absolutely. So it it kind of that that that's kind of what happens. It, it almost just absorbs into the FIFA version. And there's a perfect 
line from 2004 when the uh, Intercontinental Cup ends. 2005 is the first version of the FIFA one where it's then continuous. As I said before, they had one in 2000, they had one in 2001 that never happened. 2005 onwards, it's been every year since. So that's that's kind of like the real starting point for me. And you can see that perfect overlap of 2004 that ends. This begins in 2005. There is a lot of overlap in the sense that Toyota remained a partner of the new competition. They remained a partner until 2014. So you kind of had that, you had that kind of overlap. So it was like, you know, called something like the Toyota FIFA Club World Championship. The cup that they created for the Club World Cup was very similar to the classic Intercontinental Cup trophy. It had like a, a, a four columns holding up a golden ball on the top. So there's, you know, there's, there's that really kind of that this is, you know, Intercontinental Cup, you know, blazed the trail and then the, the FIFA version took it over. And um, as I said before, you know, within the last decade, it's, it's that recent that FIFA have turned around. I think it might have been, I think it was just off the top of my head, 2016 or 17, where they finally turned around and said, yep, you know what? We acknowledge that from 1960 onwards, everyone who won that cup is a world champion. And they recognize that officially now on all of their websites and in, in all of their honors uh, lists, that is official. Anything that went before that, because there are several other competitions that that claim to be a World Club Cup, um, they, they're not recognized. So FIFA have kind of said, nope, nothing before 1960, but from 1960 to 2004, you guys are world champions and we recognize that now. So that's really interesting. I mean, we, we've seen that time and again in U.S. and North American you know, pro sports, uh, sort of retroactive continuity, if you will. Uh, or retcon uh, it's the term that just you know it's it it glosses over it 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 white it whites over it 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 uh, uh smudges over uh you know the actual real true history so that's where a book and, and a conversation like this makes so much sense because um it wasn't that way back in the day and and to to kind of only understand it in the sort of newfangled lens that fifa kind of wants you to sort of you know peer through um, isn't quite right historically, right? Um, but tell me now what this, um, what this uh, Intercontinental Cup has wrought um, in modern day, right? This Club World Cup thing is still kind of being tinkered with. If I'm not mistaken, and I'm a fan, and I don't still even understand, it seems like now this is going to be a quadrennial thing and not an annual thing, or, or, um, and even has a little bit of competition from some of the other. I, I guess where does it sort of stand now? And I guess are people, I guess there's a contractual obligation now to participate from all the confederations, right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, the, the, the modern stuff, I, I, I touched on it in the last chapter, but it wasn't really the sort of remit of my research to, you know, to look into the future so much. I, I, like I say, I did touch upon it, but I'm not sort of completely, you know, on, you know, understanding of, of all their future plans. What I do know is that there was a competition that was supposed to take place, but it was cancelled because of COVID. And I believe that that was going to take place in China with 24 teams. So, you know, you can really see what they're trying to do there. They're taking it to, you know, it's the, it's been a lot in the Middle East and, you know, they're looking at China as well. This is obviously where that you know they'll talk about spreading the game across the globe, but obviously there's a lot of finance finances involved here. And yes, they'll, they'll look they'll look to expand it. They'll look to invite more teams, and just like the World Cup, you know, that that used to be 16 teams, then it was 24, then it was 32. I think it will just constantly 
expand. But I think the key thing is that the clubs, now the clubs will obviously have to take part because that's how FIFA do it. You know, they will, they will find a, a sort of schedule in their diary where the clubs have to go and they'll, they'll kind of make it a, you know, compulsory if you like. Um, but I, I think we'll have to see how it, how it pans out, you know, and, and how enthusiastic clubs are about, about these competitions that, that will, that will be the sort of true test of time to see if this actually will work in the long term. you know, let's, let's see how it works and let's see how enthusiastic the teams are to, to participate. Yeah, I mean, I think we can both be excused. We can be excused for not knowing this because I think FIFA hasn't formally said anything about what the format and the venue and all this stuff is going to be. I, these are sort of, uh, I guess, uh, COVID kind of you know wrought a whole bunch of different changes and in, in, in questions around this. But it, but it's pretty clear, right? I mean, that there is absolutely uh, interest in, and certainly now, especially in today's oversaturated media landscape and and alternate revenue streams and and all of that, uh, an appetite uh, for crowning a true global uh, club champion, right? Not unlike the national teams do on a regular basis uh, now at various different age groups, right? Under the FIFA umbrella. Uh, It just sounds to me like some of the issues that you uh, go into great detail in this book, which is, you know, uh, overdue, I think, in terms of uh, adding to the sort of the, the history of all of this is is maybe more logistical. I mean, I, it just seems like it's now even much more complicated, uh, not only schedule crowding, but uh, the fact that now the, the the world is a large place. The hemispheres play different calendars. Um, and now even the warping of the the actual World Cup itself now going to be during November and December. Right. Which is unheard of and unprecedented. Right. Uh um, I, I don't know. It just seems like it's it almost feels garga- uh, monumental a task uh, to, to even hope that you're able going to get 24 or 32 club teams. Certainly annually has got to be just impossible um, to kind of come together and, and be crowned a quote unquote true world club champion. Yeah, and I think this this goes back to the, you know one of the queries that you said before. If they do make it every every kind of four years. You know who who will take part, and does that mean that you know if if you won the you know the European Champions League in 2022, that you would then be involved in 2026? You know uh, how how much could that club have changed in those four years? You know how how will that work? Um, you know how will how will they be a true champion of the world if they've not won the European Cup for four years or something like this? But yeah, I think I think it's the way sports going. I mean, you look at the Champions League it, itself, where they have teams. You know, you can finish fourth in your league, and you can still go in the Champions League. In South America, it's even worse. You know, you can finish sixth or seventh in Brazil, and then you can still enter the Copa Libertadores. You know, it's and and what for me this the, the problem is with this is all the power is concentrated in 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 the hands of a few. So. You know, on a global scale, you've got Europe, which dominates. And then, you know, within Europe, you've got five, well, probably not even five. You've probably got, you know, England, Spain, Germany, to a lesser extent, Italy and France. You know, you've got you've got the power concentrated in five leagues, you know, three, three, four, five leagues. Within those leagues, you've maybe got one or two teams, you know. And this is probably something that is, again, it's, you know, something that is not, potentially recognizable to, to us sports fans because you know yes you have teams like you know the new england patriots that might dominate for a few years but with with your draft system you know then you've got other teams that can then build over two or three years and then come good 
at the moment in Europe, it just seems that you've got a couple of teams in each country who are dominant. And that for me, you know, maybe I'm being nostalgic, but that, that's why I love this this competition. And, and this is why I wrote the book because it takes me back to an era where there was a bit more, a bit more randomness, you know, a bit more teams winning it that, Oh, where did they come from? You know, they've just, they've gone and won this, you know, Nottingham Forest are a great example in England. You know, they came from nowhere to win the European cup and then they, you know, then they, they play in the intercontinental cup. That just wouldn't happen nowadays. Um, and this is my problem with the FIFA club world cup going forward. What's, I mean, for me, I think it's pointless because I know, I know full well that it'll be, it will be won by a European team. And I could probably give you the two or three teams that it would be between and for me, when there's no kind of jeopardy or unpredictability in sport, it, it, it ceases to be sport. Yeah, look, I mean, and, and we can debate whether we're at peak sports now with private equity and, and, and the, 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 high, the hiving together. I mean, Manchester City, you know, owning club teams around the world as part of a, an overall umbrella organization. I mean, we, we can go on and on about that stuff. But, I, I you know, one of the things I thought you were going to go towards was... Um, this idea even of um, the idea of a FIFA true club champion may not even be even if not for logistics, just even conceivably attainable because you have obviously the Champions League, which is, you know, the model of of, of club championships uh, in the sport and arguably maybe even across sports all across the world. Right. It's um, it's it's undeniably uh, successful and and. Uh, and and a gravitational pull in terms of audience and stuff worldwide, but you know in in you know to to then take the winner of that, let's say, and put it in a world club championship. I mean, it almost seems like you know playing the champions of of the Middle East and and Concacaf and in, in North America. I mean, they could even almost be outshone by uh, some of the regional stuff, right? So in the United States, I mean, you know, the U obviously Con- uh, Concacaf here now has a club championship as well modeled after the champions league they call it the champions league you know but it's you know champions of trinidad and in mexico and but now even the even the u.s major league soccer and liga mx in uh, in mexico are going to create starting next year their own club championship amongst the two leagues right some even thinking that it could be um the uh, the lead up to the eventual merger of these two leagues into a super league between Mexico and the United and North America, the U.S. and, and Canada, um, and you, you could argue that a knockout competition of that might be kind of really all there really is in in North America, right? I mean, um, so I you know it's it's I guess this is what soccer and sports is all about these days, right? It's it's always money drives everything, seemingly and sadly. Um, yeah, I probably agree with you nostalgically. Um, where is the randomness? Where is the um, uh, out of the blue? Like, where is the the Leicester cities of the world? Right. You know, that that come in. It sadly, it's just it's more of a an exception rather than um, a rule, I guess, of of uh, parity and or opportunity for all. Um, you know, I it would be great to see that, though, because that's what the world game theory is all about it is that kind of anybody can win on any given day absolutely and I, I think that's why it's you know worth celebrating a competition like the intercontinental cup where it was it was very it was very random it was very it was very even you know you know 22 to 21 wins for south america and you know yes that did start to tilt towards the european side in the latter years but you know you still had 
teams like San Paulo in 92 and 93 beating Barcelona, the great dream team of Johan Cruyff. And then in 93, they beat Milan, you know, with um, Fabio Capello was the, the coach and you had, you know, Baresi and, and Maldini and, you know, so you, you still had these strong South American teams who could compete and, but everything just becomes kind of, becomes just sort of centralized. And I mean, even now in, in South America, you know, the Copa Libertadores, it's always Brazilian teams that win it. You know, it's, it, we're just losing that kind of, we're losing that randomness, but that's why I think it's really important to, to sort of look back and, and celebrate these brilliant competitions well, it's it's a fascinating history. Forty four years of such. Um, is there any uh, so for our listeners? I mean, if people want to go down the YouTube rabbit hole and and hopefully find some of the the, I mean, and maybe not. There's not great coverage still out there, or pr- potentially sort of preserved yet, uh, or maybe sitting in someone's attic or basement. But uh, in your research, uh, was there a particular year or two, and or team or player or or few that kind of stood out maybe as uh, either emblematic or, or most memorable, perhaps, of this series of competitions? Yeah, I mean, as you say, you know, some of the early uh, early versions, it's so difficult to find footage, um, you know, w- with it being 60-odd years ago, you know, there, there isn't loads of footage out there. I think um, more of the recent stuff, there's, you know, I think um, Flamengo played Liverpool in, in, in 1981. So um, Liverpool, obviously a famous European team. Flamengo from Brazil, the most popular team in Brazil. And they had a player called Zico. And he was, you know, unbelievable on this day. You know, that, that's worth looking up to see his performance. There's a really famous game from 1985 when Juventus of Italy played Argentina's juniors. Um, and Michel Platini, who was involved with UEFA and quite famously involved in a corruption case recently, he was playing for Juventus and he was unbelievable on that day. So that that's worth watching. Um, there's a couple of quite funny moments in there as well. There's one where he, he scores a goal and the referee disallows it and then he just basically lies down and he's just in like a relaxed relaxed pose you, you have to youtube it to, to understand what i'm saying but um that's that's quite a famous and funny one there was a game in 1980 in 1987 between porto of uh, portugal and Peñarol of uruguay and it was played in the snow and you, you know you have to just see it to believe it because the pitch was this was in tokyo so it was an unusual tokyo sort of winter thick snow and if this was any other game they probably would have called it off but because two teams have traveled halfway across the world they play ahead in this snow. When the game starts, the pitch is like brilliant white with snow. By the end, it's just it's brown. It's just slush and mud. And they're just rolling around. No one can keep their footing. But funnily enough, they try, you know, they've they've managed to clear the advertising signs, you know, around the outside of the pitch. They're all free from snow. So everyone can see the the, the sponsors, but the, the game on the pitch can't be played properly. So that, that's really funny to watch. Um as I said, the, the as I mentioned before, the Sao Paulo team of 92 and 93, they beat Barcelona and Milan. Worth watching, absolutely. Um, and, you know, 2002, Ronaldo for Real Madrid, he was the man of the match, coming a few months after he'd won the World Cup with Brazil. And, um, yeah, Boca Juniors in 2000, beating Real Madrid, that's a really famous game. Um, so, so yeah, I would, I would, I would say those are the, the ones, to, the, the picks of the bunch for me. All right. Our thanks to Dan. Fascinating stuff. I learned a ton. And uh, let's hope that the uh, upcoming FIFA World Cup uh, doesn't disappoint. 
and perhaps uh, uh, reinstill some vigor and some interest uh, in the uh, re-rebirth of the FIFA Club World Cup, uh, begun as we just heard in earnest and uh, informally at that as the Intercontinental slash Toyota Cup. And um, why not crown the best world club team and do it in an official manner? It's all good, uh, I think, if 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 it's not uh, further <laughs> tiring the, uh, the legs of the players involved. How many more matches can they play during the course of a year? I don't know. But uh, we wish all uh, for the best, of course. And the book uh, that you must get, it's a great read. Uh, again, learned a ton and you will relive uh, some of the most memorable moments of this Intercontinental Cup thing. It's called When Two Worlds Collide, the Intercontinental Cup Years. Uh, written, of course, by Dan Williamson, our guest this week. It is published by our pals at Pitch Publishing. And of course, you can get it wherever good books are found. Uh, but if you'd like to uh, give us a couple of shekels of, of love uh, in a referral manner, we'd appreciate it. If you went to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, just search up this episode number 283 with Dan Williamson, and you'll find a convenient link to the book. Uh, we'll get a couple of um, referral uh, uh, pennies or nickels, and um, it uh, it helps keep our lights on. And we uh, we could not appreciate that more. Uh, you'll get uh, whisked away to Amazon. That's where you'll find either the Kindle or hardcover versions. And um, however you get the book, just get it. Uh, but uh, that's our preferred path, of course. Uh, and you can follow Dan in all his doings, both on a personal and uh, book level. Uh, at two different uh, on two different feeds here on Twitter, uh, his personal one is Wink Varon, W I N K V E R O N at Wink Varon or Varon. And uh, also, if you want to follow the doings and some snippets from the book, uh, you can follow uh, on Twitter at International Cup Year. So it's at I N T L Cup C U P Y E A R S Intel Cup Years. If you want to pronounce it, I guess. Uh, also on Twitter. Uh, while you're on uh, social media, why don't you uh, give us a follow or two or three? Uh, we're on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. We're on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available and on Twitter, of course, at Good Seats Still. Although how long remains to be seen now that Mr. Musk is in charge, but I digress. Email. You can send us uh, a letter of uh, love and encouragement and uh, uh, support and whatever. Uh, some digital currency, if you'd like. Why don't now? Oh, do that. Uh, what are we? Soupy sales. Uh, you can send us an email at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Again, our website, goodseatsstillavailable.com, uh, is yours for the uh, gandering. Lots of uh, old episodes there. Uh, lots of great imagery there. Uh, lots of uh, convenient links to the books and stuff there. Uh, that's a, 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 a treasure trove for you as well. Our thanks, of course. Uh, to the one, the only, Dr. Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne, Audio Excellence. Thanks for uh, twiddling the knobs once again uh, in expert fashion again, kind sir. Thank you. And of course, to our great listeners, that includes you who are listening right now. We appreciate it. Uh, until next week, stay safe and um, enjoy the sports, everybody. There's tons of it. Thank goodness. It feels good to have sports in our lives, doesn't it? Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.